Uh, if you will, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4. My name is Pastor Ray Cosley. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. I'm one of the pastors here at Living Way. Uh, we are missing a, a critical and important part of our family today. If you notice, Pastor James, Gene, and their family are not present. They're actually on vacation. So if you have them in mind, you could just be praying for them that they would come back nice and rejuvenated, rested, and enjoying that time together with family. So yes, please, Luke chapter 4, and will you go with me before the Lord in prayer? Yes, God, you are worthy of it all. From you are all things, to you are all things. You deserve the glory. And so, God, would you glorify yourself today? God, you are worth an infinite measure of the praise and glory that is due your name through us, your creation. Those of us, God, who are created by you and those who are now a new creation in Christ Jesus, you deserve glory. So, God, glorify yourself. And grant us the grace to see the beauty and the wonder of that glory, that we might praise you for your worth. God, we just pray against any evil force, as we know there are evil forces that are arrayed against us right now, that want to trample on your glory and want to diminish your worth. And so we just call to attention every evil and demonic force that wants to distort, destroy, Lord God, distract, and we just command you right now to leave this place. You are not welcome. We command you right now in the name of Jesus Christ, based on the authority that belongs to us in the heavens, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And God, we pray that you would just send your angels, and God, grant us the grace to be attentive to your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. <clears throat> Well, those of you who have been with us for the last few months, I've been going through a series, and I've actually entitled it Spirit and Power, and this will be my final and last message in that series. I began the sermon series right after Resurrection Sunday with a deep and profound personal frustration. For me, it was the frustration of this constant hum in my life over years and years of discontent. Along the journey, I've asked you as well to identify your hum, that area in your life that you wish that you could move away from, that you could rid yourself of, that area of anger or anxiety or, or control, that, that place of lust in your life or, or, or desire to compare, the envy, whatever, that area of hum in your life that has been ultimately not doing the trick of bringing you the satisfaction that your heart longs for. I ask that you would identify it. And we saw in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19 that that, 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 that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a declaration that we who are in Christ Jesus have been given power not to live in that hum. Jesus died so I don't have to live in discontent. He died so you don't have to live in anxiety. 
He rose from the dead so you can actually not have to envy the things, Lord, that you envy around you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it says that in his resurrection, we also too were raised with Christ in the heavenly places, which means that because he rose and we are risen with him, we can live a life that is characterized by joy. Not perfectly, but we can have the hum of it. That, that there's, there's the opportunity because he is risen and we are risen with him, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that we can have joy, that you can experience greater measures of consistent patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And then we saw how do we gain that power? Ephesians three sixteen that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. How? Through his spirit. So if I'm going to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, so that I have to live in the hum of my discontent or whatever your hum is, then I need to experience more of the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Then the question becomes is how do we get more of the Spirit? And we looked at the book of Galatians. Galatians 5 and then Galatians 6. And we talked about the law of sowing and reaping. See, if you're going to get more of the Spirit... So you can have more of the power so that you can live more of the raised up life, then you're going to have to engage in consistent practices that foster more of the Spirit in your life. But our problem is what? Our problem is the reason why we find ourselves humming is because we we don't sow to the Spirit. A lot of times we find ourselves practicing or sowing in the flesh. We put our minds and our bodies in the flesh. We put our minds and our bodies in the arenas where the flesh traffics. And so as a result, we find ourselves still in these areas of hum. And then I ended last couple weeks ago with Colossians chapter 3 that tells us that the primary practice in order to gain the power of the Holy Spirit is to set our minds on things above. And I call this the practice within the practice. So now as I end, let's end with watching the master at work. The one who actually modeled walking in the power of the Spirit, namely our Lord and Savior and treasure, Jesus Christ. So what I'm asking today is, what does it look like to sow into the Spirit so we can get more power, so that we can live the raised up life, so that we don't have to live in the hum? And then what are the three practices that we see in the text that foster more power of the Spirit? So if you're with me, Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the what, everyone? Everybody say Holy Spirit. So here we already see the setting. The Spirit of God is present. That's what we want. Amen? And look where he's going. Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the what? Wilderness. How many of you guys want power in your wilderness? So here we see Jesus is stepping into the wilderness, but he's moving into the wilderness with the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. I want us to first focus in on verse 1, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. 
So again, we have the Spirit, which is the need that we have for power. The Spirit is leading Jesus. What's interesting is that Matthew and Mark both use the word, because Matthew and Mark also tell the story of Jesus in the wilderness. They both use the word into in the Greek. But what's interesting is what Luke says here, was being led in, is actually in the Greek, the imperfect tense. So therefore, he uses the preposition in rather than into, if you notice that. What does that suggest? The imperfect tense suggests that he was constantly and consistently for those 40 days being led in the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. It's not just initially that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness and then took off and left him to his own resources. No, every single day, moment by moment, every one of those 40 days, he was being consistently led by the Spirit in perfect tense. What else do we have here? Well, we also have an allusion to the opposite of or the garden. Now, remember my last sermon that I preached on, we talked about the garden. We talked about Adam and Eve. We talked about the fact that the sin beneath the sin, the sin originated in our forefathers, namely Adam and Eve, the covetousness. Well, what's interesting here is that this story of the wilderness is bringing us back into the garden. Well, where do we see that? Well, if you just look up one verse from verse 1 in chapter 4 to chapter 3, what you have is, beginning at verse 23 of chapter 3, is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What's different about the genealogy here in Luke, as opposed to Matthew, is that Luke begins with Jesus and his father Joseph, and look where he ends. He ends in verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of what? Adam, the son of God. Matthew's genealogy is the very opposite. So here what Luke is trying to tip us to is the fact that what's about to go down in the wilderness in chapter 4 has all to do with Adam. We now have the second Adam that is now stepping on to the scene. You see, back in the garden, our hearts moved outside of God and His ways. And as a result, it created a wilderness. And now Jesus is stepping into the very wilderness to represent an Adam that was supposed to be before the fall. What's also interesting here is not only do we see the garden with Adam, we see the garden with who? Satan. Verse 3 of chapter 4, the devil said to him, the devil starts in on Jesus. Now, here's what's also interesting. We only find a face-to-face -face temptation from Satan himself in only one other place in the Word of God. You know where that is? In the garden. That's the only other place where you find Satan himself in another place with a face-to-face -face temptation in all of Scripture. So again, Luke is trying to point us to the fall of Adam. What else do we have here where we're looking at the garden? We also have temptations. 
So not only do we have the garden with Adam being the genealogy, not only do we have Satan, the only other time we see him face to face is in the garden, we also have temptations. The same temptations that we see in the garden. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. The devil here starts in on Jesus the same way that he did Eve. By planting the first D, I like to call it doubt, in Jesus' mind. And he tries to get Jesus to doubt his identity. If you are the Son of God, you see in the story, literally right before Jesus is led into the garden, Jesus encounters his father, does he not? He encounters his father during his baptism. And what did the father say about Jesus? This is my what? Son, in whom I am well pleased. But now here Satan's coming on the scene and he's saying, ah, I think you need to question that. First of all, if you were the son, why would a father send their son into a wilderness? You see, it's the first century version of the fall of Adam where God said, did God really say you shouldn't eat of that tree? I think you should doubt that. Just like Satan is trying to get Jesus to doubt his sonship here. Because see, Satan's logic with Jesus is sons of the king don't starve in deserts. Therefore, you must not be the son. So why don't you prove it? Because I think you ought to doubt that. Maybe I can pause here because maybe we can find ourselves in these types of situations personally. God, if I truly belonged to you, just like Satan's trying to get Jesus to question here, if, do you really belong to God? Are you really a son? Well, sometimes we can question the same thing because when we look at our wilderness, anybody got a wilderness? then it can cause us to question and wonder, well, God, do I really belong to you? Because sons don't starve in wildernesses. You see, this is where my hum of discontent came from. This is where the anxiety and the anger that resonated at at the bottom of my soul came from because there's a disconnect between the wilderness that I find myself in and the belonging and sonship that I long for. Because guess what, God? I've been in the wilderness for a long time, and now I'm starting to doubt. Do I really belong to you? Because sons don't starve in wildernesses. You see, the teenager says, God, if I belong to you, I wouldn't have parents that won't let me do this or that. It's the husband or wife that says, God, if I was really your son or daughter, if if I really belong to you, then I wouldn't be married to this. It's that single person that says, if I really am your son, if I really am your daughter, if if I really belong to you, I should have already been married by now. You see, if if I belong to you, I I would have had this measure of success. If if I really am a son, then, then I'd have a more measure of margin, that there'd be more freedom from this area of pain in my life. If I really was a son, then, then I'd get that miraculous healing that I've been longing for. If I really was a son, then I'd have this degree of favor or that. 
If I really was a son, then I'd see and experience that light at the end of my tunnel. You see, the wilderness in so many ways is the place where we begin to buy into the lie that we don't belong. That the God who's declared over our lives in Jesus Christ that we belong to him, it just can't be true. And so we then pursue things outside of the garden. Because in the wilderness, suns don't starve. But it's in the wilderness where if we pause, God is the most present and most powerfully available in our lives. And Jesus knew this. So first he tries to get him to doubt, just like he did for Adam and Eve. And then we also see the next temptation that we see in the garden in verses 5 and 6. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms in the world in a moment of time and said to him to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will Satan now switches things up and instead of trying to get Jesus to satisfy his hunger for for physical provision he tempts him to satisfy his hunger for what power doesn't that sound familiar That takes us back to Adam and Eve. For God knows that that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be what? Opened. And you will be like God. You have power, knowing good and evil. The same tactic. The same approach. He goes from attempting to get him to doubt, like Adam and Eve, to now focusing in on his desires. Hey, Jesus, I want you to covet something that the Father hasn't given you right now. The kingdoms of the world and and, and power and authority. Jesus, don't you desire that? You see, he's trying to plant covetousness in his life. Because in this moment, in Jesus' journey, God hadn't given him that tree, did he? Well, not only then does he try to get him to doubt Now he does he try to get him to covet and move into his desires. In verses 9 through 11, and he took him to Jerusalem and said, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So first he tries to get him to doubt God's word. Then he tries to get him to desire something outside of God's word. And now lastly here, what does he do? He distorts God's word. Doesn't that kind of sound familiar? That takes us right back to the garden. You will not surely die. There's the distortion. Satan used the same tactic in the garden. Doubt. What God's word says is true. Desire that one thing that God hasn't given you and distort the truth about what God has said. Because that's what Satan did in verses 9 through 11, a distortion of God's word. So here we find Jesus in the same predicament as Adam and Eve. Jesus needs power. If he doesn't give power, 
then he's going to find himself in the same predicament as them. Now, we know how the story ends because we're standing here saved and sanctified. Amen? So Jesus won. But remember Luke chapter 4, verse 1, if you go back up there. Remember how it says that he was led by the Spirit in imperfect tense, the wilderness. The entire time, the power of the Spirit was on Jesus. So here's my question. What was Jesus engaged in for him to foster that kind of powerful spirit? What was he doing those 40 days that invited God the Holy Spirit to enable him to conquer those temptations? Well, first, what do we see? Jesus is all alone. Silence and solitude. Jesus is fasting. Coupled with that, I'm sure, prayer. And thirdly, his mind is full of the scriptures. In other words, Jesus goes after the temptations of doubt, the temptations of distortion, the temptations of disordered desires by engaging in spiritual disciplines that invite the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, I told you we're going to watch the master at work. See, if we don't want to fall into our hums, then we got to ask ourselves, how did our master and model do it? Because we are disciples of him. So the question is, what does it look like then to sow into the Spirit? What we see in Jesus' example is a consistently engaging in the same practices that Jesus did so we can experience the same power that Jesus did to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, here's something we might get twisted about Jesus. Of course he did it. He's perfect. Well, Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 tells us this. It tells us that he set aside his deity. It's the concept that we call the theological concept of kenosis. Jesus was always 100% God and always 100% man. But when he became flesh, he set aside all of the rights, privileges of what it means to be God so that he could walk as Adam walked, as humanity. What does that mean? That means that Jesus had to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in the kind of spirit fruit that we want to experience in our own lives of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus got his power by relying on the Spirit, not from his power from being God. Stephen Porter from Biola University talks about the disciplines, and he says this about the spiritual disciplines. The disciplines are embodied practices, listen, in a physical world whereby, whereby we present ourselves to the immaterial reality of the Spirit, presence, word, and truth of Jesus Christ. Meaning, it is through the practices of Jesus that we open our souls to the Holy Spirit. I like how Comer puts it. 
The practices of Jesus are effectively counter habits to those of our flesh. They are habits based on the life and teaching of Jesus that resist the habits of our flesh. Every time you practice a habit of Jesus, your spirit, one way to think of your spirit is your inner will, gets a little stronger and your flesh, your inner animal, gets a little weaker. But that said, he goes on, the practices aren't just counter habits to work out our willpower muscles. They are the means by which we access power from beyond us. They enable us to live from an animating energy and a pneumatic force that is far more powerful than any inner resource we could possibly draw on. You see, the practices are the arenas where we set our minds on things above. That's why I call it the practice within the practice. It's in the disciplines or the practices that we practice setting our mind while we're in the practices. So, how did Jesus not fall into those three Ds? He engaged in spiritual disciplines. Now the question becomes this. I'm just going to talk about three of those anchor disciplines that we see in the text. First, what we see Jesus engaging in is the practice of the Word of God. How does Jesus fight the devil's lies? By turning to Scripture. Three times the devil tempts Jesus with a lie. And three times Jesus quotes Scripture in reply. Verse 4, and Jesus said to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Verse 8, and Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Verse 12, and Jesus answered, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The spiritual discipline of the word of God. Now again, remember we said The Spirit was consistently empowering Jesus for those 40 days. And the question is how? Because he was engaged in God's Word. So that when the devil came, he was already present and empowered with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know this sounds maybe elementary for those of you who have been in church for some time or maybe even not so long. I know I got to be in my Bible. I got to read the Word, memorize prayer, blah, 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 blah. I heard it before. But here's the thing. If we get it, then why are we still humming? Because Jesus wasn't. Then either, either we're not doing it or we're not doing it in the way that we ought to. Right? Yeah, y'all heard that before, but did you really hear it before? Think about the simple math. The average American adult watches TV or videos online about five to six hours a day. The average millennial is on her phone up to four hours a day. That adds up to almost a decade of your life. Barna Research did on millennials found that they spend almost 2,800 hours a year consuming digital content. But only... 
153 hours of that is Christ-based content. The rest is an internet cornucopia of YouTube, Instagram, Netflix, Apple, and others. My point is this. Many of us spend hours every day filling our minds with lies, cutting off our minds from God's spirit and truth. In only a few minutes each morning, if that, filling our minds with truth and resting in the spirit and the presence of our God and Father. Is it any wonder that we often see the world more often through the lens of secular theory than Scripture? Or that we get sucked into our covetousness? We get sucked into our disordered desires and begin to live in a way that we think ought to be normal. Or maybe now we can see why we're stalled in our formation in Jesus. That area where you're saying, man, I just want to be this. I just want to grow in this way. I just want to go beyond this way. Well, 153 hours is not going to do it, church. Again, like I was saying, we, we suffer from that shazam. We got shazam, shazam. Shazam theology. How many of y'all got some shazam? I got some shazam theology. Am I the only one that's, that's going to admit it? Yep. God just zapped me. I'm sick and tired of being this way. I've been praying all this time, and then it becomes his fault. Oh, I don't know how many times I sit in front of people. I've told you guys this. And say, man, you know what? I've been praying for five years, and God just won't do, 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 do. Oh, but you got 2,800 hours of social media. And then wonder why you are living and humming in the flesh. You see, if we're honest, we know, but we don't know. We really, really don't prize this book. Back in the day, my alias rap name was Reza. I wrote this little rhyme called Reza. The word of God will blaze you. Have you on your knees calling Christ Lord and Savior. There's no debater. It's sharper than a two-edged blader. So get them hands up in the air. You can do that in church. Razor, sharp like a saber. Hit you with the infinite wisdom from the creator. It bangs like a gangster. Sharper than a two-edged blader. So let me hear you holler, oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Razor, gospel communicator. No, I'm not a gangster rhyme sayer, kicking flavor in your ear, because it's the word of God that I savor, conforming my image and my behavior to that of the Savior. It'll skip you like a vinyl, have you passed out tripping like a drunken wino. I'm talking about that Bible. Changes your prognosis, examines the heart, and shows a sin diagnosis. It reveals man's motives. It's so scrumptious that I eat it on a daily double doses. The word is God's gift. That's why I wrote this. You know this. No document is greater. If you don't believe me, check that Dead Sea paper. Any spectator can see the fingerprints of the creator, rightly interpreting every layer. That's why they call me Razor, the name designed to praise the scriptures that are pinpoint like a laser. Historically accurate, magnificent, isn't it? Still relevant after thousands of years, that's resilient. You got to give God love because that's brilliant.
It's all words. Fight for words. You see, Jesus, he fought for words. The human race was plunged in destruction with words. The creation of this entire universe, every molecule in your body was created by words. Jesus is the incarnate what? Word. You want to talk about covetousness? You want to talk about wanting that tree or this tree? Because if I get that tree, then finally I'll be happy. What do you think social media is doing to you all day long? It's telling you all about the trees that you don't have. And if you spend 2,800 hours looking at all the things that you don't have, no wonder you humming. You see, it's the word. It's the word of the world out there that constantly is consuming our minds and thoughts. It's the word that has us frustrated, angry, out of control, envious. So maybe, maybe we know, but we don't know. We're just not really doing this. Not like Jesus did. Or secondarily, maybe we're not doing it with the right intentions. See, a lot of times we, we engage in the disciplines because we think, if I perform, then God will love me. That's not gospel. That's not grace. Maybe it's to kind of fill that quota of whatever is in your mind of the expectation of what you think you ought to do as a Christian. Maybe you are, are reading God's Word, memorizing it, studying it, listening to it, whatever it may be to make you feel better. Or maybe you think it'll make God feel better about you. Or maybe it's just to fill your mind with information because it's good stuff. I like how Comer puts it. Here's the intention of getting in this Word. The key is not just to think about Scripture, but to think Scripture. Didn't Paul say, the minds governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. We have a government up here in our minds. It's either life or death, chaos or peace, and these battles are won in the mental, with thoughts, ideas, words. And if we give in to the words and the thoughts that are at war with us outside of us, from our friends, from social media, from what we watch, from the messages we give ourselves, if those are all the words that we're getting, then we get strongholds of the devil in our lives. And then we find ourselves in a captivity that Jesus did not die to free us from. Can I get an amen? You see, when you get into the Word of God, not to think about Scripture, but to think Scripture, you actually start to cut neural pathways that eventually take root in your neurobiology, your body itself. We all know this. You become the words that you bring to your mind. So here's what I'm saying. I don't want to... There's all kind of ways to approach the Word of God. At the end of the day, do what you got to do. Read, study, listen, whatever it may be. 
But an application that I think is really insightful was one that comes from Evagrius, who was a desert monk. And Comer talks about him. And he actually modeled the way that he engaged the Word of God when it came to the hums and the demonic temptations in his life. And he says this, I spent months writing down in my journal, and maybe you want to do this. I suggest that maybe you do. I spent months writing down in my journal every thought or emotion that came into my conscious awareness. I identified repeating thoughts that were lies from the devil. That's the first thing. Get a journal. Write the repeating thoughts of all of the lies that come at you from the evil one, that come at you from the world, that come at you from the flesh. And then he said this, Then I asked the Spirit to bring to mind a specific Scripture verse to combat each lie. Sometimes a Scripture would come immediately to mind. Other times I had to wait on God for days or weeks just to get the right verse. But once I had it, I wrote it beneath the lie. So he had it in his journal. He wrote the text beneath the lie. And he says like this, against the thought, stepping out in faith to start this nonprofit will end in disaster for my family. He wrote next to it, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Against the thought, my wife and I are a bad fit. I would be happier if I got a divorce. He wrote underneath it, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Husbands, love your wives. Be considerate as you live with your wives, heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Against the thought, I want to buy that new thing that I don't need or, or I wish I had in order to be happy. He wrote underneath it, be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then he said this, then I put those scriptures to memory. He said, writing it down was the easy part. Then I, st- then I started putting these to memory. And then he said, then it was the harder challenge. It was the ongoing war to combat lies and curate my thoughts. Every time an identified lie came to my conscious awareness, I don't fight it head on. I just change the channel. I bring the corresponding scripture to mind and I direct my attention to truth. Then I go about my day. If the thought comes back three seconds later, I do the same thing. I simply turn to the same scripture and I keep doing it over and over and over and over again because I'm going to war. I don't want to think about scripture. I want to think scripture. And here's where the second discipline that we see with Jesus while he's in the wilderness. Not only was Jesus engaged in the word, he was engaged in silence and solitude. Remember Luke chapter 4 verse 1. Jesus was being led by the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus literally goes into the the desert not to just get rid of all the external inputs, right? That's kind of what we think silence and solitude is. All the external inputs, we got to make sure we get all the inputs out the way so we go. No, he actually wanted to get into silence and solitude for the internal inputs. He wanted to be able to sort the voice of the Father from the voice of the enemy. You see, a lot of times we stay busy and we stay too busy. We can't catch up with what our hearts are really saying to us. We can't catch up with all of the voices and what they're saying. 
You see, a lot of us, I think we misunderstand silence and solitude. We think it's a place to relax and recharge. And my extroverts, y'all can't stand some silence and solitude. Amen, amen. I got, I got an amen. Come on now. Amen for my extroverts. Okay, well, well, let's redefine biblical silence and solitude. Okay, for introverts, yes, it can be a place to relax and recharge. Okay, but Jesus' silence and solitude, it wasn't a time for a break. It was a time for battle. It was the field on which the battle for the hum in your life is won or lost. Because here's the reality. If you don't slow down and shut it down and shut up, you can't hear what your heart is doing and saying to you. You can't hear the hum if you're so busy running from it. You see, it's in silence and solitude that the devil's lies come to the surface and you can hear them more clearly. It's in silence and solitude that you can finally hear what's going on down there. You can hear the words that are coming at you, the words from the world, the words from your flesh, the words from the evil one, the patterns that are dominating your thoughts and your mind. And it is there that you then face a decision in the silence and solitude. Am I going to give my intentions to the words of the flesh, the world, and the devil? Or am I going to give my words to the truth of what God says about my situation? But see, you can't even get there if you don't slow down, stop, and be quiet. So see, silence and solitude is not just for the introvert. It's for anybody who finds himself in Christ Jesus who wants to live a life of victory. Now, the third anchor I thought to just stop and not go into because I always tend to go longer than I should. And y'all know me, so I'm always cutting stuff. And it was fasting. And so I think I'll reserve that for some other time, and we'll talk about the third one that Jesus engaged in, which was fasting. But what was my point in this message as we're watching the Master? The point in my message is this. The way Jesus opened himself up to the power of the Holy Spirit, again, verse 1 of chapter 4, was being led. The way he continuously remained being led is he stayed in the stream of the practices that invite the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want more spirit, go where the Spirit is. And the longer you reside there, the more you will find the hum silencing and the hum of joy and peace and patience and satisfaction and rest and control will be yours. So as I close, we have power in Jesus. You don't have to live in that hum. That was where we began. And that is where we end. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be characterized by it. You don't have to be bitter. You don't have to be bound by sexual lust. You don't have to. 
the resurrection of Jesus was that powerful. Some of you are full of resentment right now. That's eating away at your soul. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to manipulate people around you to get the kind of love and acceptance that your heart longs for. You don't have to walk in unforgiveness because as much as you want to hold on to that unforgiveness, you know deep down inside that unforgiveness is eating you up and you don't have to be there. You don't have to be characterized by impatience. You don't have to carry that that mean spirit. You don't have to look to the power of sex or or, or alcohol or food or drugs or Korean dramas to, to feel that area of discontent. You don't have to live in covetousness. Always looking for that tree, that one tree in the garden of your life that God hasn't given you that you keep telling yourself, if I could get my hands on that tree, you don't have to look at that tree anymore. In Jesus Christ, you have the power to look at all of the garden that you've gained in him all around that tree. You see, you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to. But here's the reality. Shazam won't do it. It takes effort. See, effort is not opposed to grace. But grace is needed for the effort. And if you want more of the Spirit's power, you've got to set your mind on places where the Spirit is. That's the practice within the practice. Whether it's fasting, whether it's silence or solitude, whether it's worship, whatever practice is spiritual, this is what I want to encourage you to do. Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Set your mind on things above. Go into your disciplines setting your mind on things above. Whether it's prayer, whether it's the word, whether it's fasting, whether it's coming to church, whatever it may be, set your mind on things above. That's the objective. And the more you set, the more you root, the more you put yourself in the vein of the Holy Spirit and all that he has for you and your mind is there, the fact that you have every blessing in Jesus Christ, you will change. And you'll live like Jesus lived. Even in your wilderness. Not only was he in a wilderness, but dude was hungry. Starving. But yet full of the Holy Spirit. We can live this way too. So I want to invite you as I'm close and I'm done with the series. I asked you, Identify that area of the flesh in your life that just continues to linger. I want to encourage you to commit. If you want to see that change in your life, to engage in, pick two disciplines where the Spirit of God is present and commit to engaging in those things. 
And be patient with yourself and the Holy Spirit. It takes time. You didn't get where you are in two days, you ain't going to shazam out of it in two days. But I can guarantee you this, you look up two months from now, six months from now, a year from now, and somebody will look at you and say, man, you look like you just have more joy. You, you're, you just got more patience. There's more peace that I'm seeing coming out of your life. You don't have to be where you are. But the question is, church, are you willing to put in the effort so that you can experience the power that the resurrected Christ died and rose for you to walk in? Let's pray. God, I come before you right now and I pray for my brothers and sisters. And I ask you in Jesus' name, will you please grant them the grace for the effort and to know, Lord God, that they are loved by you right where they are. And that you, Lord God, would do an enabling work that, Lord, none of us could comprehend. God, testify to your power in our lives that we might walk the way Jesus walked and experience, Lord God, the kind of life that Jesus did. Spirit of God, I ask, do far more abundantly than we could even ask or think. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome.